Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, welcome back. We are on part two of chapter 35, the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. This is evident by the dedication which is addressed to the Grand Master, Masters, Wardens, and Brethren of the Most Ancient and Most Honorable Fraternity of the Freemasons of Great Britain and Ireland. The important fact in this dedication is that the writer refers in language that cannot be mistaken to a certain higher degree or to a more exalted initiation to which the degrees of ancient craft masonry were an introduction. Thus he says, addressing the Freemasons, quote, I present you with the following sheets, as belonging more properly to you than any else. But what I say here, those of you who are not far illuminated, who stand in the outward place and are not worthy to look beyond the veil, may find no disagreeable or unprofitable entertainment. And those who are so happy as to have greater light will discover under these shadows somewhat truly great and noble and worthy the serious attention of a genius the most elevated and sublime, the spiritual celestial cube, the only true, solid, and immovable basis and foundation of all knowledge, peace, and happiness. End quote. Another extract will show that the writer was not only thoroughly acquainted with the religious, philosophical, and symbolic character of the institution, but that he wrote evidently under the impression, perhaps we should say the knowledge, that at that day others besides himself had sought to connect Freemasonry with Rosicrucianism. He says, quote, Remember that you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and the fire of the universe. Ye are living stones built up a spiritual house, who believe and rely on the chief lapis angularis, which the refractory and disobedient builders disallowed. You are called from darkness to light. You are chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. End quote. Here the symbolism is Masonic, but it is also Rosicrucian. The Freemasons had taken their symbol of the stone from the metaphor of the Apostle, and like him had given it a spiritual meaning. The Rosicrucians had also the stone as their most important symbol. Now, says one of them, in this discourse will I manifest to thee the natural condition of the stone of the philosophers, appareled with a triple garment, even this stone of riches and charity, the stone of relief from languishment in which it is contained the very every secret, being a divine mystery and gift of God, than which there is nothing more sublime. Naturally, a Rosicrucian, in addressing Freemasons, would refer to a symbol common to both, though each got its meaning through a different channel. In another passage, he refers to the seven liberal arts, of which he calls astronomy, quote, the grandest and most sublime, quote. This was the Rosicrucian doctrine. In that of the Freemasons, the leading place is given to geometry. Here we find a difference between the two institutions which proves their separate and independent existence. Still more important differences will be found in the following passages, which, while they suggest a higher degree, show that it was a hermetic one, which, however the Rosicrucian writer was willing to graft onto Freemasonry, he says, quote, And now, my brethren, you of the higher class, note that he does not call it a degree, 
Permit me a few words, since you are but few, and these few words I shall speak to you in riddles, because to you it is given to know those mysteries which are hidden from the unworthy. Have you not seen them, my dearest brethren, that stupendous bath filled with the most limpid water, than which no purity can be purer of such admirable mechanism, that makes even the greatest philosopher gaze with wonder and astonishment, and is the subject of the contemplation of the wisest men? Its form is a quadrant sublimely placed on six others, blazing all with celestial jewels, each angularly supported with four lions. Here repose our mighty king and queen. I speak foolishly, I am not worthy to be of you. The king, shining in his glorious apparel of transparent, incorruptible gold, beset with living sapphires, he is fair and ruddy, and feeds among the lilies. His eyes, two carbuncles, the most brilliant, darting, prolific, never-dying fires, and his large, flowing hair, blacker than the deepest black or plumage of the long-lived crow. His royal consort, vested in tissue of immortal silver, watered with emeralds, pearl, and coral. O mystical union, O admirable commerce, cast now your eyes to the basis of this celestial structure, and you will discover just before it a large basin of porphyrian marble, receiving from the mouth of a large lion's head, to which two bodies displayed on each side of it are conjoined, a greenish fountain of liquid jasper. Ponder this well and consider, haunt no more the woods and forests, I speak as a fool, haunt no more the fleet, let the flying eagle fly unobserved. Busy yourselves no longer with the dancing idiot, swollen toads, and his tail-devouring dragon. Leave these as elements to your Tyronis. The object of your wishes and desires, some of you may perhaps have attained it, I speak as a fool, is that admirable thing which has a substance, neither too fiery nor altogether earthy, nor simply watery, neither a quality most acute or most obtuse, but of a middle nature, and light to the touch, and in some manner soft, at least not hard, not having asperity, but even in some sort sweet to the taste, odorous to the smell, grateful to the sight, agreeable and delectable to the hearing, and pleasant to the thought. In short, that only one thing besides which there is no other, and yet everywhere possible to be found, the blessed and most sacred subject of the square of wise men, that is, I had almost blabbed it out and been sacrilegiously perjured, I shall therefore speak of it with a circumlocution yet more dark and obscure, that none but the sons of science and those who are illuminated with the sublimest mysteries and profoundest secrets of masonry may understand. It is then what brings you, my dearest brethren, to the pellucid, diaphanous place of this true disinterested lovers of wisdom, that triumphant pyramid of purple salt, more sparkling and radiant than the finest orient ruby, in the center of which reposes inaccessible light epitomized, that incorruptible celestial fire, blazing like burning crystal, and brighter than the sun in his full meridian glories, which is that immortal, eternal, never-ending Propius, the king of genius, whence proceeds everything that is great and wise and happy. These things are deeply hidden from common view, and covered with pavilions of thickest darkness. That which is sacred may not be given to dogs or your pearls cast before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn again and rend you. End quote. All this is Rosicrucian thought and language. Its counterpart may be found in the writings of any of the Hermetic philosophers, but it is not Freemasonry, and could be understood by no Freemason relying for his guide only on the teaching he had received in his own order. 
It is the language of a Rosicrucian student or adept addressed to others of his kind who, like himself, had united with the fraternity of Freemasons that they might out of its select circle choose the most mystical and therefore the most suitable candidates and to elevate them to the higher mysteries of their own brotherhood. That Philalethes and his brother Rosicrucians had an opinion of the true character of speculative Freemasonry, very different from that taught by its founders, is evident from the other passages of this dedication. Unlike Anderson, Desagalier, and the writers purely Masonic who succeeded them, the author of the dedication establishes no connection between architecture and Freemasonry. Indeed, it is somewhat singular that although he names both David and Solomon in the course of his address, it is with little respect, especially for the latter, and he does not refer even by a single word to the Temple of Jerusalem. The Freemasonry of this writer is not architectural, but altogether theosophic. Clearly, as a hermetic philosopher, he sought to identify the Freemasons with the disciples of the Rosicrucian sect rather than with the operative Freemasons of the Middle Ages. This is a point of much interest in the discussion of the question of a connection between these two associations, considering that this work was published only five years after the revival. The book suggests not that Freemasonry was established by the Rosicrucians, but on the contrary, that at that earlier period the latter were seeking to link themselves to the former that while they were willing to use the simple degrees of craft Freemasonry as a foundation for the building of their own fraternity, they looked upon them only as the means of securing a higher initiation, altogether unmasonic in its character, and to which but a few Freemasons ever attained. Neither Anderson nor de Sagalier, or Best, because they are of that very period, authority for the state of Freemasonry in the beginning of the 18th century, give the slightest indication that there was in their day a higher Freemasonry than that described in the Book of Constitutions in 1723. The hermetic element, such as is represented by the specimen already submitted above, was evidently not introduced into speculative Freemasonry until later in the 18th century. Even then, it appears in a fragmentary way, in some high degrees, made by certain of the continental manufacturers of rights. If, as Eugenius Philalethes plainly means, there were in the year 1721 higher degrees, or at least a higher degree, attached to the Masonic system and claimed to be a part of it, which possessed mystical knowledge hidden from the great body of the craft, quote, who were not far illuminated, who stood in the outward place, and were not worthy to look behind the veil, end quote, by which we are clearly told that there was another class of initiates who were far illuminated, who stood within the inner place and did look behind the veil. Then the question forces itself upon us. Why is it that neither Anderson nor de Sagalier, nor any of the writers of that period, nor any of the rituals mention this higher and more enlightened system? The answer is readily at hand. It is because no such system of initi initiation, so far as Freemasonry was concerned, existed. The master's degree was at that day the end and perfection of speculative Freemasonry. There was nothing above or beyond it. The Rosicrucians, who especially in their astrological branch, were then in full force in England, had, as we see from this book, their own initiation into their hermetic and theosophic system. Freemasonry, then beginning to become popular and being also a mystical society, these brethren of the Rosy Cross were ready to enter within its gates and to take advantage of its organization. They soon sought to discriminate between their own perfect wisdom and the imperfect knowledge of their brother Freemasons, and Rosicrucian-like spoke of secrets they only possessed. There were Rosicrucians who, like Philalethes, became Freemasons, and Freemasons, like Elias Ashmole, who became Rosicrucians. 
but there was no birth of one from the other. The two systems are not even akin. Their origin is different. Their symbols, though sometimes the same in appearance, are not always, if ever, the same in meaning, and we cannot trace the one historically from the other. Yet there have been students whose judgments on other matters has been good, who have not hesitated to trace Freemasonry to a Rosicrucian source. Some of these, as Buell, De Quincey, and Sloan, were not Freemasons, and we can fairly credit their historical errors to their want of knowledge. But Nikolai and Rigolini have no such excuse. Johann Gottlieb Buell, born 1763, died 1821, was among the first to claim that Freemasonry was an offshoot of Rosicrucianism. This he did in a work entitled On the Origin and the Principal Events of the Orders of Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry, published in 1804. His theory was that Freemasonry was invented in the year 1629 by John Valentine Andrea and that it sprang out of the Rosicrucian system or fiction set forth by that writer. His errors met with many denials at that time, besides those of Nikolai and the work already mentioned. Even De Kinsey himself, a foe of Freemasonry, and who translated, or rather rewrote the views of Buell, does not hesitate to call him illogical in reasoning and confused in style. Nikolai and De Kinsey have almost the same theory, though that of the former is modified in its conclusions. The self-esteem of De Kinsey, with his complete ignorance of the true elements of the Masonic institution, hardly entitle his arguments to serious criticism. His theory may be explained briefly as follows. He thinks that the Rosicrucians were attracted to the operative Freemasons by the facts and legends of the latter, and that thus the two orders were connected with each other. The same building that was used by the Guild offered a desirable means for the secret assemblies of the early Freemasons, who of course were Rosicrucians. A set of tools and utensils, such as was presented in the fabled tomb of Father Rosenkreutz, was introduced in the first formal and solemn lodge of Freemasons, on which occasion the name of Freemasons was publicly made known, was held in Mason's Hall, Mason's Alley, Basinghall Street, London, in the year 1646. Into this lodge, Elias Ashmole was admitted. Private meetings may have been held, and one at Warrington in Lancashire is mentioned in Ashmole's life but the name of a Freemason's Lodge, with all the other Lodge circumstances, first came forward at the date above. All this, he tells us, is upon record, though De Kinsey does not tell us where it is to be found. Now we know, from authentic records, all this to be false. Ashmole is our authority. He is the very best authority, because he was an eyewitness and took a personal part in the events he records. We have already seen by the extracts given from Ashmole's diary that there was no record of a lodge held in 1646 at Mason's Hall, that the lodge was held, with all the attributes and circumstances of a lodge, at Warrington, that Ashmole was then and there initiated as a Freemason and not at London, and finally, that the record of the lodge held at Mason's Hall, London, which is made by the same Ashmole, was in 1683, not in 1646, or 35 years afterward. A historian who thus mangles records to sustain a theory is not entitled to the respectful attention of a serious argument. De Kinsey may be weighed for what he is worth. We cannot allow him the excuse of ignorance. He evidently had Ashmole's diary under his eyes, and his misquotations could only have been made in bad faith. Nikolai is more honorable in his mode of treating the question. He does not trace the use of Freemasonry directly and immediately from the Rosicrucian Brotherhood. But he thinks that its mystical faith was the cause for the outspring of many like associations, such as the Theosophists. That, passing over into England, it met with the experimental philosophy of Bacon, as developed especially in his New Atlantis. 
that the combined influence of the two, the esoteric principles of the one, and the experimental doctrines of the other, together with the existence of certain political motives, led to a meeting of philosophers who established the system of Freemasonry at Mason's Hall in 1646. He does not say so, but it is evident from the names that he gives that these philosophers were astrologers who were only a branch of the Rosicrucians devoted to this specialty. The theory and the arguments of Nikolai have already been considered. They need no further discussion here. Rigolini's views are based on the Book of Nikolai and differ from them only in being, from his Gallic ignorance of English history, a little more inaccurate. The conclusions of Rigolini have already been considered by us. Now we meet with another theorist, scarcely more respectful or less a trifler than De Kinsey, and who, not being a Freemason, labors under the handicap of an incorrect knowledge of the principles of the order. As to his regard for accuracy, he takes for granted as authentic history the Leland Manuscript. George Sloan, in a very readable book published in London in 1849, under the title of New Curiosities of Literature, has a very long article in his second volume on the Rosicrucians and Freemasons. Adopting the theory that the latter come from the former, he argues from what he calls proofs, but which are no proofs at all, that the Freemasons are not anterior to, do not precede the Rosicrucians and their principles, so far as they were avowed about the middle of the 17th century, being identical it is fair to presume that the Freemasons were, in reality, the first incorporated body of Rosicrucians, or Sapientis, and that's a quote. He admits that this is but a presumption, and as a presumptions are not always facts, we cannot admit his claim without evidence. Sloan goes on to support his presumption in the following way, quote, In the Fama of Andrea, he says, we have the first sketch of a constitution, which bound by oath the members to mutual secrecy, which proposed higher and lower grades, yet leveled all worldly distinctions in the common bonds of brotherhood, and which opened its privileges to all classes, making only purity of mind and purpose the condition of reception. This is not correct. Long before the publication of the Fama Fraternatus, there were many secret associations in the Middle Ages to say nothing of the mysteries of antiquity in which such constitutions prevailed, requiring secrecy under the severest penalties, dividing their system of esoteric instruction into different grades, establishing a bond of brotherhood, and always making purity of life and upright conduct the necessary conditions of the candidates for membership. Freemasonry needed not to seek the model of such a constitution from the Rosicrucians. Another argument advanced by Mr. Sloan is this, quote, The emblems of the true brotherhoods are the same in every respect, the plummet, the level, the compasses, the cross, the rose, and all the symbolic trumpery which with the Rosencrucians named in their writings as the insignia of their imaginary associations, and which they also would have persuaded a credulous world concealed truths ineffable by mere language. Both, too, derived their wisdom from Adam, adopted the same myth of building, connected themselves in the same unintelligible way with Solomon's temple, affected to be seeking light from the east, in other words, the Kabbalah, and accepted the heathen Pythagoras among their adepts." In this passage, there are some claims not free from question. Mackey asserts that the emblems of the two orders were not the same in any respect. He says the square and compasses were not ordinary nor usual Rosicrucian emblems. In one instance, in an illustration in the Azoth Philosophorum of Basil Valentine, published at London in 1678, we will, it is true, find these tools forming part of a Rosicrucian figure, but Mackey says that they are there evidently used as phallic symbols, a meaning never attached to them in Freemasonry, whose explanation of them is taken from their operative use. 
We know from a relic discovered near Limerick in Ireland that the square and the level were used by the operative masons as emblems in the 16th or perhaps the 15th century, with the same meaning given to them by Freemasons of their present day. The speculative Freemasons take nearly all their symbols from the tools and the language of the operative art. The Rosicrucians took theirs from astronomical and geometrical problems and connected them with a system of theosophy and not with the art of building. The cross with the rose, referred to by Sloan, never were at any time emblems of the three degrees in craft masonry and were put into such of the high degrees in the middle of the 18th century as had in them a Rosicrucian element. Again, the Rosicrucians had nothing to do with the Temple of Solomon. Their invisible house, or their temple, or house of the Holy Ghost, was a religious and philosophic idea, much more of the type of Lord Bacon's house of Solomon in the island of Bensalem than of the Temple of Jerusalem. Finally, the Freemasons in Seeking Light from the East intended no reference to the Kabbalah, which is never mentioned in any of their primitive rituals, but to the East as the source of physical light, the place of sunrising, which they adopted as a symbol of intellectual and moral light. It might indeed be easier to prove from their symbols that the first speculative Freemasons were sun worshippers than that they were Rosicrucians, though neither theory would be correct. If anyone will take the trouble of reading the three books of Henricus Cornelius Agrippa's Occult Philosophy, which may be considered as the textbook of the old Rosicrucian philosophy, he will see how little there is in common between Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry. One is a mystical system founded on the Kabbalah, and the other the outgrowth of a very natural use of symbols taken from the customs and the tools of an operative art. The Rosicrucians were theosophists, whose doctrines were of angels and devils, of the elements of the heavenly bodies and their influence on the affairs of men, and of the magical powers of numbers, etc. The alchemists, who have been called physical Rosicrucians, adopted the metals and their changes, the elixir of life, and their universal solvent as symbols, if we may believe Ethan Allen Hitchcock, by which they concealed the purest dogmas of a religious life. But Freemasonry has not, and never had, anything of this kind in its system. Its founders were builders whose symbols applied in their architecture were of a Christian character. When their successors made this building fraternity a speculative association, they borrowed the symbols by which they sought to teach their philosophy, not from Rosicrucianism, not from magic, nor from the Kabbalah, but from the art to which they owed their origin. Every part of speculative Freemasonry proves that it could not have come from Rosicrucianism, the two orders had in common but one thing. They both had secrets which they carefully hid from outsiders. Andrea sought, it is true, in his Fama Fraternitas to elevate Rosicrucianism to a more practical and useful character, and to make it useful for moral and intellectual reform. Even his system, which was the only one that could have had any influence on the English philosophers, is so thoroughly different in its principles from that of Freemasonry of the 17th century that a union of the two, or the tracing of one from the other, must have been out of the question. A claim has been made that when Agrippa was in London in 1510, he founded a secret society of Rosicrucians. This is possible, although during his brief visit to London, Agrippa was the guest of the learned Dean Colet, and spent his time with his host in the study of the Bible. I labored hard, he says himself, at the Epistles of St. Paul. Still, he may have found time to organize a society of Rosicrucians. At the beginning of the 16th century, secret societies, chiefly composed, says Morley, of curious and learned youths, had become numerous, especially among the Germans, and toward the close of that century, those secret societies were developed into the form of brotherhoods of Rosicrucians, 
each member of which gloried in styling himself physician, theosophist, chemist, and now, by the mercy of God, Rosicrucian. But to say of this society, if one was actually established, as has been said by a writer of the last century, that this practice of initiation or secret incorporation, thus and then first introduced, has been handed down to our own times, and hence, apparently, the mysterious Eleusinian confederacies, now known as the Lodges of Freemasonry, is to make an assertion that is neither upheld by historical testimony nor supported by any chain of reasoning or likelihood. While the theory that Freemasonry was born of Rosicrucianism, and that its founders were the English Rosicrucians in the 17th century, is wholly unsound, there is no doubt that at a later period a Rosicrucian element was very largely used in the hot grades or high degrees. And that ends chapter 35. Stick around, next week is chapter 36, The Rosicrucianism of the High Degrees. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.